It's time for Security Now. I'm back, baby. So, Steve Gibson, we're going to talk about a new, well, not that new, but a, an interesting encryption and security protocol for the web, DTLS, for the web, DTLS. In just a little bit, all the security news, too. It's all next with Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. It's time for Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 380, recorded November 28th, 2012. Datagram Transport Layer Security. Security Now is brought to you by Audible.com. To download a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, the show that protects you and your privacy online with our explainer-in-chief. He's here right now, Mr. Steve Gibson. The man, that's him. That's me, he says. Welcome back from Australia, Leo. Well, thank you. I missed you. I really did. Those, I, likewise. This Although morning Tom, I was thinking, I oh, say. goody, it's security now. I get to see Steve. <laughs> oh, goody. I got to wake up and take a shower and get my butt into work. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was excited. But I Actually, do think... Go ahead. You, you've already been here. You've already oh, been yeah, back. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You I'm, just barely missed being able to I've been to back a week. Time. I'm acclimated, but I got back uh, yeah, later on Wednesday. And I said just that's, to skip Wednesday because of jet lag and so forth. And I was going to say, that time zone switchover is like that. You know, it was, it was much better than it had been before. The last time I went to Australia a couple of years ago was in the spring here, fall there. And that's the maximum difference because we are in summertime and they are in wintertime. Ah. And this is the minimum difference. It's only We're only five hours earlier than Sydney. So um, it's not. It, I mean, Sydney's only five hours earlier than us. So, for instance, right now it's five eighteen a.m. in Sydney. Five hours is not is it, that doesn't phase me. Twelve okay. hours phases me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Five <laughs> hours I can handle. So I'm fine. You know, I'm I, I'm, ah, cool. I'm feeling good. I was waking up a little, you know, a little early, going to bed a little early. That's about it. Or I'm sorry, waking up a little late. So you today are going to be talking about the datagram transport. Layer security, whatever the heck that is. Well, the last question that we entertained last week was from a listener who said, hey, I just got the option under optional upgrades on Windows 7 to install something called DTLS, Datagram Transport Layer Security. Uh, Should I do that or not? What is that? And I thought, well, that's a perfect topic for next week. So <laughs> do that. We, do uh, that. So, basically, that's how I answered the question. And now we'll do a full excellent. episode to talk about it. Turns out it is it's very cool. It's been well done, implemented just right by people who knew what they were doing. Uh, it's had a couple RFCs. It's made its way into the security packages. So it's it's real. And, you know, if Windows you know, Microsoft are saying, oh, you know, let's add this to the OS, then it's made some sort of cut. I mean, Microsoft must have some plans for it for some reason. And so we're going to talk about all about what that is. 
there's all kinds of news and paraphernalia and updates and miscellaneous and fun stuff. So I think we've got a great yeah. podcast for for your return to security now, Leo. Thank you. And by the way, a hearty thanks to Tom Merritt, who made uh, my trip possible. Uh, everybody j- pitched in here, you know, Sarah and Tom and I as and everybody. But Tom t- took three security nows. So yeah. that was quite a few. Thank you, Tom. For, very comfortable. Uh, for and uh, w- what are his moving plans? Is, he's mo- is he moving down at the beginning of the year or sometime next yeah, year? Yeah, I think what he told us, uh, you know, Eileen, his uh, wife, my former producer, got a great job uh, as a, a senior producer for YouTube in L.A. So wow, she, I think she's already uh, started. I think she's moved down there. I think he said that last week. Yeah, yeah. and so uh, he is going to wrap things up here. They've got a house and so forth, and uh, I think he plans to be down there early uh, next year. But we're going to, I mean, we'll figure this out. He probably won't be able to fill in for me on security now anymore, but hes I think he's still going to be able to do a TNT and all of that stuff. Good. We're hoping anyway, because it's his yeah. show. I can't, there, no one else can do TNT. So... Um, yeah. So um, anyway, thank you, Tom, for uh, for doing that. But I'm glad to be back. I, I I did. This is I missed some shows. I miss more than others, but I miss this show a lot. Uh, cool. Our show today brought to you by Audible.com, that great bookstore of audio books. I'm going to work on Steve. One of these days, we're going to get him. He likes Kindle. He likes to look at stuff. See, I'm very uh, auditory. That's how I learn. And my son, it's interesting. He's 18, and for years struggled with reading. And it wasn't so long ago, a couple of months ago, he said, Dad, the problem is I keep, by the time I get to the end of one page, I can't remember what I read in the, at the top of it. <laughs> he says, I just, I, I lose track of it. And I, and, and now I've told him this for years, but sometimes, you know, you, you, you mention it, you mention it, finally it sinks in. I said, well, why don't you listen to audiobooks? He said, okay. I said, whoa. <laughs> I, got, I got him a great book. It's uh, the new uh, book from Richard Dawkins, The Magic of Reality which is a wonderful book kind of about science and 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 the magic you don't need you know supernatural stuff you've got stuff that's magical in science alone it's a wonderful yeah. picture book which i actually then gave uh, henry so he could look at the pictures but what a great book he really got a lot out of it richard dawkins uh, narrates it along with uh, lala ward and uh, they do a, a very good job of keeping it fast moving interesting um, a great book for you, for an adult, but also for Henry's a high school senior, getting him into science. And it's led then to books by Brian Greene on string theory and uh, other Richard Dawkins books. And he's just, he's going, he's eating them like candy now. And I'm just so grateful to Audible uh, because here's a kid who just really wasn't that interested in school who's suddenly waking up. It's really, really neat. Audible is a great way to read when you can't read. Now, people get mad at me when I say read. Yeah, you're listening, but you're listening to the full text of the book. It's everything that's in the book uh, pouring into your ears while you're driving, working out. Here's a great one that uh, I'll make sure Henry has uh, next. The man who mistook his wife for a hat and other clinical tales. It's the Oliver Sacks uh, book. Oliver's got a new one just came out, also available if you like psychology and interesting things called hallucinations. How do why what happens? Why do hallucinations happen? Why have humans always sought them? What is going on in the brain? Neuroscientist Oliver Sacks really is good at communicating this stuff. Boy, that'd be a great book too. And if you want, and this is the one actually, Henry said, I need a new book, and I said, well. How about a little break from all the high intellectual stuff you've been reading? I, I set him up with Mark Owen's book, No Easy Day, the first-hand account 
of the mission that killed Osama bin Laden. But it's really much more than that. It's about um, it's a, it's by a member of SEAL Team Six, uh, and about their training, about what they do. A very gripping story. Love it, and uh, I know I know Henry will love it too. So this is the idea. Audible. It's there's of course a lot of nonfiction, but there's also great fiction too. I mean, if you if you like listening to thrillers, science fiction. Uh, mysteries. It's all here. Danielle Steele, even romance novels. Audible, here's the deal. I'm going to get you one for free right now. Audible.com slash security now. Audible.com slash security now. And if you go there, you'll be signing up for the gold account. That's a book a month. First book, first book is free. First month is free. Cancel at any time. The book is yours to keep forever. You pay nothing. Audiblepodcast.com uh, slash security now. Over 100,000 titles you can listen to. Anytime you can't hold a book, you could still listen to a book with Audible. And, it's, and you know, lots of the sci-fi that we talk about oh, on yeah. the show. Including all the Honor Harrington uh, novels. Ooh, yes. Yeah, I'm, you know, it's just for me, I just don't have time. And I also, we were talking before the show began, we're getting old. And by, by about 8 p.m., it's hard to pick up a book and read without going... A page later. Yep. So I, I just, yep. for me, the, I spend enough time at the gym or driving, you know, the kids to school or commuting or whatever that I can get a lot. I can get usually an hour of reading done every day without even noticing it. And now I got my house set up with a Sonos system. So I've got, I've got sound in every room. So I put the, this is only because there's, I'm living alone. I put the audio in every room and I can walk around and house clean and do get stuff done and listen to my book wherever I am. It's really nice. Cool. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to distract. Steve Gibson, let's start no. with the security news. I know there's something. So we got, yeah, um, a number of th- sort of observations uh, and a few events. Um, uh, Brian Krebs had an interesting note on his site that I just thought was sort of interesting as some background about what's going on. Uh, he because he, And Brad's one of the things that Brian really does well is he he's like, I guess he's infiltrated would be the right word. Many of the hacker underground where he keeps an, un- an understandably low profile, but it allows him to you know, have a finger on the pulse of what's going on in that world, um, which, you know, unless you really made an effort to to be part of that community, it wouldn't be easy to have. Um, he picked up an essentially an ad from a hacker who is offering a new zero-day flaw. Um, and, and well, it, 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 yes, it is a new zero-day flaw, which is, actually sounds redundant. I, don't know, I was wondering, <laughs> why, why did I write the word new? It's because it, it, it's a Because there have been many it, before this. <laughs> well, it's because it's a newly introduced flaw that doesn't exist in earlier versions of Java, meaning that they just created this flaw oh, in the most, I know, in the most recent update. So, the, and the hacker is expecting to get a five-figure sum. Uh, Brian wrote, according to the, I, lo- I love this, he used the words vendor. This is a, a zero-day vendor. Mm. He said, according to the vendor, the weakness resides within the Java class MIDI as in, you know, M-I-D-I, music, MIDI device.info, a component of Java that handles audio input and output. Code execution is very reliable. This is the, the hacker speaking. Code execution is very reliable 
worked on all seven version I tested with Firefox and MSIE on Windows 7. So he meant Java version 7, which is the, the current one. He, and Brian says, the seller explained in a, in a sales thread on this exploit, it's not clear whether Chrome also is affected. He said, they, the hacker said, I will only sell this one time and I leave no guarantee that it will not be patched, so use it quickly. Oh, wow. And then Brian said the seller was not terribly specific on the price he is asking for this exploit, but set the ex expected offer at, quote, five digits, unquote. The price of any exploit is ultimately whatever the market will bear. But this is roughly in line with the last Java zero-day exploit that was being traded and sold on the underground. In August, I wrote about a newly discovered Java exploit being folded into the black hole exploit kit, quoting the author of that crimeware tool as saying that, quote, the price of such an exploit, if it were sold privately, would be about $100,000. Hmm. Wow. So, That's six figures. You know, that, that, so think about it. There are entities on the net that have a use for for vulnerabilities such that it will generate a profit if they pay $100,000 for this knowledge. So there's the question of how quickly the window will be closed, how quickly it will be discovered, how quickly it will be patched, how quickly, you know, it will no longer be useful. But the obviously they're not going to buy it if they're not going to make money. So... So, I mean, it gives you some sense for the the economy, which is now operating on the Internet in this in this world where where, you know, Java, as you know, Oracle keeps bragging about three billion devices have it. Um, but many of them that are being here in this case, this is the most recently updated patched versions have this problem. Um now, I just tweeted another nice piece that Brian put together titled, How to Unplug Java from Your Browser. If you just put that phrase into Google, how to unplug Java from the browser, actually, um, that'll take you right to his blog posting. Or you can just go to twitter.com slash sggrc, my Twitter stream, and you'll find... Uh, the link that I that I tweeted because he he does go through what we've talked about before, sort of in oh yes yeah just go do this um, sp specifically for all the various browsers and a couple people tweeted back saying well that must not be very recent because Brian refers to the the wrench icon on Chrome and apparently Chrome has now changed it to the more standard three lines to represent a menu. And I'm thinking, well, okay, but, you know, Chrome is about as dynamic as anything has ever been. And last time I looked at Chrome, it had a wrench. So I presume if I open it up today, it'll have three lines. But, you know, that was only a few days ago that I saw the wrench. So, you know, this is a, a I, <laughs> it doesn't mean that this is old information. It's just that Chrome is ridiculously um, fluid. One of the things that's kind of interesting about this is how hard it is to, 
take Java out of Internet Explorer. It's, it's, I know. It's, it actually most doesn't need the... an article for most browsers, but for <laughs> IE, there's registry keys. Uh, most of the posting is like 90% it's is crazy. getting it out of IE. You know, and of course, the takeaway is just get yourself out of IE. Yeah, no kidding. Don't, don't use it. And, Although, and this, you know, there's a good article. I just read an article uh, by our friend Peter Bright, who's a Windows expert, writes for Ars Technica. Uh, about uh, Mozilla and why they've abandoned the 64-bit version for Windows, and they're sticking with 32-bit, and there's and there's real security flaws with that, including uh, an inability to good, do good ASLR, and and uh, and I was just was very interesting. It, it really sounds like the most secure browser in Windows, frankly, is Internet Explorer 10. Wow! If you if you're a Windows 8 user, so. Um, <laughs> It's a mix, right? It'd be nice to be able to just check a box as you can in Safari and Chrome and Firefox that says it disabled, you know, don't enable Java. But on the other hand, there's other security benefits to IE. So, yeah, Microsoft is moving forward. I mean, I'm I'm happy with the changes that they're making. Um, the podcast two weeks ago, that is the non Q and A podcast that I did with Tom, we covered in detail. A, they, a keynote offered by an executive VP of Microsoft explaining the nature of the browser and privacy ecosystem and why it was that they chose to turn oh, the do not track on by default. Oh, listen to that one. Yeah. So it was an interesting. It was an interesting take. And the, you know, the bottom line, if we want to really shorten it, it's they asked people. And three-quarters of their customers says, yes, I want that on by default. And right. so Microsoft said, okay. Right. Um, I ran across an interesting CAPTCHA. We, CAPTCHAs are always, you know, we talk about it whenever something uh, comes, comes along that seems fun. Uh, this one is a JavaScript jigsaw puzzle. It's called a Key CAPTCHA. So key K-E-Y-C-A-P-T-C-H-A dot com keycaptcha.com. Now, the problem is even tweeting it as I did to put the link out there so that people could grab the link um, from my Twitter feed brought the site down huh. an hour or two ago. Oh, dear. So it's, it's gone right now because I just said it on the, you know, for our live audience who all tried to go there. Um, and even this morning when I was playing with it, it was dog slow. So they're, Lord knows what they're running it on. But, you know, if to, if anyone to take this seriously, they're going to have to get a you know a a stronger site. Um, but it's kind of a cool idea. It shows you a a picture with some chunks missing, and then a little graphic of what it's supposed to look like, and the pieces over over on the upper left. And your job is to drag the is to like recognize how the diagram should look when it's complete, and then. It's and then kind there's of hard a demo to do, pick. actually. It wasn't easy. Yeah. 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 And then drag the pieces over to fill in the diagram. So it's like, okay, well, there's, you know, yet another CAPTCHA. Prove that you are not a bot. Yeah. I don't, I, I'm, I'm sure somebody could do this algorithmically. But the point really should be made that most of the time what people now do is just copy this CAPTCHA to a porn site and get humans to do it. If they really wanted to get in. Right. right? Well, and I would argue that the more different kinds of captures there are, the better. Yeah. Because this is one area where 
if everyone used the same one, then it would make much more sense. It's very much like, you know, if we were all using only one OS, that right. that would be less secure than if everyone wrote their own because right. then none of them would be identical. Right. Uh, and it's, it's the fact that so many people are using Java, for example, that creates the problem that Java introduces. Otherwise, people would have to, you know, start from scratch on every single machine they wanted to infect. But that's not the way the world works. Still, the more captives we have, the better. Mm -hmm. Now, Kaspersky has a very nice five-minute video about securing Facebook. Um, I also sent the link. I put the, the link in my Twitter feed so anyone can go to twitter.com slash sggrc to find it. Um, or, again, you can Google how video securing Facebook is the is the text in the blog that'll probably bring you to it. It's the kind of thing that our listeners ought to watch, but mostly just to to preview it before sending it to everyone they know who uses Facebook. Yeah. It's a little high end. That is, it's it's it it move, It's only five minutes, so it goes through a lot. But it is really, really good how-to for the settings you can change in Facebook to lock it down to, for example, to, to, to require authentic, you know, a higher level of, of authentication. If you ever log in from a machine you haven't before, um, how, to, how to set up a, um, a text loop to your phone and turning on secure. Um, one of the bits of news that, that you missed, Leo, is that Facebook is now rolling out HTTPS by default globally. They're, they're doing the U.S. first and then worldwide. So first they gave us a setting we could turn on for that. Soon it will just be on by default. So that's a really good move forward. But this has lots of, you know, because it's a video, it's pretty easy to follow. Someone could stop it and like follow along with it. Um, and of course, backspace to to watch it again. But I'd like to, you know, commend it to our listeners to send to their Facebook friends uh, who think they might be able to take advantage of some better security. It's a nice little five minutes. I'm watching it right now. <laughs> Problem is, and, it changes uh, from minute to minute. So Brian, Brian Donahue, who did this for a threat post uh, on Kaspersky, will have to redo it every five minutes. But yeah, there you're right. There are details. For example, he mentions there when he's talking about turning on uh, HTTPS security, he says soon this is supposed to be on right. by default. Right. Well, that's you know that's now the case. Yep. So, oh, no, no. yeah, still I think you know lots of good tips are in there. Um, uh, the other thing that I saw that caught my attention was just the the problems with. Uh, uh, SCADA or SCADA, S-C-A-D-A, which is the acronym for Supervisory Control and Data Acquisition. Um, you and I talked about on the last podcast we did together before your trip, um, uh, we, we, we were bemoaning that like nuclear reactors were like connected to the internet and what a horrible problem that was. That prompted one of our listeners who works for a company that have solved that problem to uh to tell us about it and so tom read that um might have just been last week um it was really interesting they they have what they called a a double diode is their their term for this the idea is they have 
two machines, one inside the security perimeter, one outside. They're connected only by a fiber optic cable, and the interface on the protected one can only transmit. It only has a, a fiber optic emitter. There is no receiver. And similarly, the one on the outside can only receive. It's unable to transmit. So that the hardware itself is, is only one direction. There's no way to send data in the other direction over that link. So I thought that was interesting. Um, but, you know, we've often talked about how, how f- fundamentally how difficult security is and that unless it's always been written from the beginning to be secure, coming back and looking at it from a security standpoint retroactively is almost guaranteed to be a disaster. And I saw several places in the last week were comments about this, the problems with SCADA. And once again, this is something that has been in place for a long time. And it really wasn't until the Stuxnet worm event that people realized, whoa, uh, you can do bad things with this. And so uh, Kaspersky picked up on the story and, and wrote, it's open season on SCADA software right now. Last week, researchers at Revuln, R-E-V-U-L-N, an Italian security firm, released a video showing off a number of zero-day vulnerabilities in SCADA applications from manufacturers such as Siemens, GE, Schneider Electric, and others. And now a researcher at Exodus Intelligence says he's discovered more than 20 flaws in SCADA packages from the same vendors and other manufacturers after just a few hours work. So this is the problem is that all of this software was written sort of pre-security concern. Many of it or much of it was written before networking happened. And in the same way that Windows got stuck on the internet when it was not secure, and we all know how well that <laughs> turned out. Similarly, this SCADA software has been, you know, it's like, oh, well, wouldn't it be nice if we put, you know, hook this up to a network? And it's like, no, it wouldn't because <laughs> it'll never be secure. It's right. And so what's happening is software that was written when network security wasn't even on anyone's radar is now being examined and it's just being found to be Swiss cheese yeah. of security. So I am glad that there are solutions like hardware-enforced optical one-way connections between secure systems and insecure systems as, you know, one means of allowing monitoring of a facility but no reverse direction control uh, for the sake of security. It's like, whoa, we mean we do <laughs> – we need something in order to keep these things safe. Um. And I also, just for the sake of people who tweeted this and, and were wondering about it, GoDaddy has had more problems. Um, they reported, I think it was either yesterday or today, they acknowledged some strange problems that people were having who were getting infected by malware when they were visiting the websites of GoDaddy's customers. 
So it took a while to figure out what had gone on. What it was was that GoDaddy's customers were spearfished using what they know of GoDaddy. They some some spearfishers pretending to be GoDaddy management fished those customers. Those customers, as a consequence, got their accounts hijacked. Those accounts then allowed the hijackers to modify the DNS records that that GoDaddy was hosting for them, which meant that people, unwitting regular visitors who visited the sites of those GoDaddy customers were redirected to servers that were hosting the Cool Exploit Kit, which was dropping the Reviton ransomware onto their machines. So, so here's another instance where running with your shields up, running with no script on, blocking scripting by default is just really the only way you can fly if you want to poke around. Or maybe wrap yourself up in a virtual machine so that you know, you're in an environment that you don't care about if it gets infected. Um, you know, you really do need some sort of protection because this stuff is is out there. And um, so, you know, GoDaddy is apologizing and saying that they're changing the passwords on the accounts that have been hijacked and, you know, restoring the records, to, you know, the way they, they were before. It's like, okay, well, good. And I saw another little note that ties into this. Symantec did a study where they were wondering again, sort of like, what's the economic incentive here? It turns out that this ransomware, which is sort of one of the newer phenomenons of malware that we're seeing, is netting its authors as much as, in semantics computations, about $33,000 a day. So, again... I'm not sure they should publicize this. (laughs) That's I'm kind thinking, of like, hmm, oh, that's I more should, than I'm making on spin, right? Maybe, maybe I, I should do that. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> hmm. yeah. So there's definitely some incentive for for the bad guys to yeah. to you know to find zero day exploits to spearfish. I mean, and, and you know the the overall thing we see is that we now understand our secu- our systems have gotten so complicated that security is not black and white. You could argue that in the same way that no software is bug-free, no really complex software is bug-free, similarly, no really complex system has perfect security. And we keep seeing people, you know, being able to pry up the corners and find little glitches and, and weak spots and so forth. And, and so if there's strong economic motive behind doing that, people will be incented to to do it and and leverage it in every way that they can. So, yikes. Now, yikes. a couple of weeks ago, I promised uh, my analysis of CloudBerry. Um, that CloudBerry is sort of the alternative uh, cloud storage, cloud, CloudBerry backup, uh, which now supports the Amazon Glacier storage, which is so cost-effective for any instance where you just want to stuff things up into the cloud and you don't need real-time immediate access to it, which is the case for most backup. Um, we, there wasn't, we already have a solution for the Mac that we've talked about. Um, we didn't have one for, 
for Windows-based machines. Um, I got in contact with the Cloudberry guys and got email back from their crypto guy and had a chance to look at it. Now, there's one thing they didn't specify that I have asked about and have not yet received an answer. Everything else, though, they did right. And the question I have, it's not crucial, but I wouldn't. And so I wouldn't be surprised if they did it right. But the bottom line is from everything I've seen, they did everything right. Um, they use a you, they have a suite of ciphers that the user can choose among uh, AES, uh, triple DES, single DES or RC2. Now, you know, so just choose AES. I'm not sure why anyone, I guess maybe export reasons or if there was some reason you had to soften it, then you might just use, I mean, no, no one wants to use one DES, maybe, maybe triple. Um, but so you have a choice of ciphers. Um, every single file or portion of a file, in the case, that if, if you use the block level option, gets its own initialization vector. Now, that's important because um, remember that um, in, in it, it, that the way you encrypt a block of data is not just to encipher each block, each cipher size, like 128 bits for AES by itself. If you did that, then anytime you enciphered in, the same 128 bits, you get the same cipher out and so patterns could be seen so they solved this problem with with something called an, a, a cryptographic mode where you you chain these together and we'll actually be talking about this a little bit later with regard to the dtls protocol because this comes into play there um but similarly you you don't if you're going to encrypt multiple blocks with the same key then the problem is if you encrypt the same data, you'll get the same result in, you know, in terms of like the whole block. So to solve that problem, we use a so-called initialization vector, which can be provided. It doesn't have to be kept secret. It just has to be pseudo-randomly derived and different. So they do that correctly. Um, they also use, uh, they take the user's provided password, which never leaves the user's machine. And so if, what I haven't used yet is the acronym TNO, and they pass. This is fully TNO safe. Trust no one. So they take the user's password. They run it through a 1,000 iterations of an HMAC uh, SHA-1 hash in order to slow down the process of turning the password into the hash. And they use an 8-byte random um, salt per file. So every file which is hashed under the same password ends up with a different with a different and unique encryption key because it, it starts with a random salt which is mixed in with this uh, the password key derivation function. So that was done correct. And then with every file, they store the algorithm that was used, the encryption mode that was used, the length of the key that was chosen, which also, by the way, is user settable uh, and configurable, the initialization vector, and then the 
the password-based key derivation function used, and the iteration count, and the salt. So, I mean, this is everything you want in what should be done before the data leaves your machine so that everything in, that's being stored in the cloud is just irreversible pseudo-random noise to any authority at any entity, bad guys, good guys, anything looking at it. And the only way to make sense of it is to bring it back as it is and then do, do the reverse process that you did on your machine. So um, I've not switched to it, but I think I'm about to. Um, so I will give a, a little more of a user interface features sort of look once I've had a chance to do that. But a number of people have been saying that their 15-day evaluation period or whatever the evaluation period is, is running out and what should they do? And my advice is this looks like the real deal. I think these guys did it right. The one thing that I mentioned they didn't talk about is something which we're beginning to understand in the security crypto industry is more important than we originally thought. And that is the idea of a message authentication code or so-called MAC. The idea is that you want to prevent tampering. And so it's one thing to have privacy, but you also want to know that what you get back is exactly what you originally stored. And if you, <clears throat> based on everything I've said so far, somebody could tamper with the with the data. Now, it'd be very difficult for them to do anything useful in terms of tampering, but you would like to know when it comes back that it's it's exactly what it was that you sent. And that requires message authentication to sort of wrap this entire thing. And that's one thing they didn't mention when they gave me their technical readout, but neither did they say they don't have it. So I just, I sent back a note saying, hey, what about that? And uh, maybe they don't, which is not a huge problem, but I imagine that it's something that they ought to add if they haven't. So I will, uh, I'll update our listeners as soon as I know, but I'm impressed with it. I think they did a good job. Neat. Um, <clears throat> for what it's worth, I just thought I would, I tweeted this a few days ago when I saw it, um, but I thought I'd let all of our listeners know, people are always asking about the blinky lights running behind me. Yeah, uh, <laughs> every five I, days we should, five episodes we should explain <laughs> what those are. Um, and those are our PDP-8 mini computer replicas, which I built from a kit, uh, very nicely done, using a chip that used that was produced by Harris Semiconductor, I don't know, back in the 80s. Um, it is a, a silicon version of, it's a, one, it's a single chip PDP-8 mini computer. Um, I talk about the PDP-8 on my site. If you, uh, It's under one of the menus somewhere, under <laughs> miscellaneous, or grc.com slash PDP-8 uh, uh, will get you there. Um, the PDP-8 had a very minimal instruction set. It, it was a 12-bit mini computer. Um, anyway, it, it's sort of a blast from the past. The point is... There is one of these on sale from oh. somebody who knows me because he has a video of it running my my blinking lights program, which ah. is what those things are running behind me. 
Um, and his, you don't his, know who it is? Uh, his name was familiar from – there was a forum that we were all participating in a few right, years ago. Right, right. Uh, but I posted the link uh, on my Twitter feed, and the link is here in the show notes. You could probably search uh, SBC6120. That's the uh, – SBC is single board computer. 6120 was the name of the – was the number of the chip which was used. Currently, there's only been one bidder. Uh, the price is three ninety nine, which was probably the the starting price. Well, it's, it would have been the starting price. And it, the auction has four days to go. It closes um, in the late morning Pacific time at eleven thirty five in the morning this coming Sunday, December second. So, um, I know that at the time there was a huge demand for these. People were always um, upset because you know the kit's not continuously available. The, the, the whole thing was prepaid. Uh, the you know the kits were built in batches, and then people would come along later and say, "Hey, I want one." It's like, right. "Well, sorry, eh, you know, too late. not available anymore." So there is a working one uh, with all the bells and whistles. It's got battery backed up RAM and 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 virtual disk drives and the OS eight operating system that was the the operating system. For the PDP-8, you can is compile. Is that open source or public domain now? I mean, um, it's you know, it went from DEC to Compaq to HP, oh. and and so it's sort of got a muddled past. There, there, there is a software version, a software emulation of the PDP-8, um, where DEC, DEC apparently, or DEC or one of the derivative, you know chained owners did allow the operating system to be put into the public domain for hobby use. Ah. And then I think when Compaq had it, there was a hobby use exclusion. Um, so uh, I, I, people can certainly use it without feeling any, <laughs> any concern. Cool. Now, also when you were gone, Leo, yes. I had at one point on one of our podcasts, mount on a tripod behind me, um, the uh, <laughs> a uh, an experimental one of a kind uh, return of the infamous portable dog killer. <laughs> um, <laughs> you mentioned you were working on this. Well, well, what happened was, you know, the way my life works is I I sort of run based on demand. And it was last summer that I was lounging with my best friend who has owned a home, owned a home in Aliso Viejo for three years. We were in on the patio sipping on some Cabernet, and this dog next door was just yapping nonstop. Oh. And so, oh, and I mean, it just, it, it ruined the afternoon. It was, oh. you know, it was difficult to talk. It wasn't like a, a yap or two. It was just yap, 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 yap. It was not, and that's why... I then said, "Okay, I've got. We got to deal. We got to deal with this now." Mark has has tried to talk to the owner. She's a nice lady. Uh, she's a pilot for American Airlines, so she's gone a lot. Um, the, the, her child has a babysitter. Apparently, she like leaves the house with the dog in the back, and it just yaps up a storm. I mean, and so if Mark complains, the problem is solved for a while, and then they forget. And you know, I mean, it's just so anyway. So you, About, we should explain for those who don't know. This will, you, <laughs> this is a non-lethal, despite its uh, name, 
a non-lethal yes. solution. It was named when I was 15, um, <laughs> and I thought it was kind of a fun name. Seemed like a good uh, idea. Never killed anything, but it was designed originally to, a variation on this was designed to tame a virtually rabid dog in the neighborhood that was attacking people uh, through a fence and causing all kinds of havoc. So we have an episode, which we've aired twice, uh, which is probably the number one favorite episode of all time, uh, called The Portable Dog Killer, um, where we explain what all this is. Um, last summer, I, saw, I launched a Google group and, and started in on the design of a development platform for, for looking at this. But then the problem went away. Mark's, I don't remember what it was. They, they like apologized or the next door neighbor got a new boyfriend or something. I don't know how, it, what, what it was, but it just stopped being a problem. And so it's like, okay, well, boy, if I don't, oh, and then there was also the problem of the blackbirds or crows oh, that were incredibly so loud. Annoying. Yeah. Um, and th there was a, there was a tree. I used to be, I was sitting out on the, on the patio at Starbucks in the mornings and at one point, this tree would just be blackened with crows, all competing to see who could be louder than the other. And it was crazy. So I thought, okay, I remembered, of course, as we know from the adventure of the portable dog killer when I was 15, that, that birds are affected by this also. So I thought, all right, if I could just sweep the trees free, just tell the crows, give the crows the idea, because they're smart birds, to like go choose some other tree further away from Starbucks. But then that problem went away too. So I sort of lost steam on the project. But it wasn't before many people registered their needs for this product or this, this a solution to this problem too. So um, the pictures that I showed uh, that you have links to them, you could put them up. I also tweeted them as not far back in my Twitter stream. If, if, if people haven't okay, seen it, this is the speaker system. What? <laughs> it's on a tripod. Wait, is that four tweeters? What is? It's, it's four PZO tweeters. Yeah, they're very efficient because you're doing uh, a high frequency sound here. This is not human audible, right? Well, barely. Um, the problem while I was working on it, I had it pitched at about ten kilohertz, which is audible. Right, and in order to stand it. I had to take the lid of that box, which mounts the four tweeters, and I put them in two laptop bags stuffed inside each other and zippered it closed. Just, I mean, it was so loud. And, <laughs> and, and it is really loud. Now, in, Mar in Mark's um, setup, he's got an upstairs bedroom window that looks down into sort of the the run along the side of his neighbor's house. Yeah. And the dog stands there and just yaps. Yeah. And so and you can see an antenna on the top. Yeah. Uh, Mark now has three remote controls. He can like, when one has a belt uh, a belt hook, so he can wear it if he wants this to. Is, this is really interesting. And And so when you press the button, it gives either a one-second or four-second blast. It, I had it for a while where you'd press it once. I, it's marked toggle on the front panel, you can see. Yeah. But I changed that to one-second or four-seconds because it turns out four seconds is a long time. <laughs> anyway, this got its first use last Tuesday. 
I dropped it off on Monday, and he called in the afternoon. And he's using it and, on crows, not do- not dogs. No, this was this, this neighbor's for, dog. This is for the dog. The, okay. The problem was back. Okay. And he, I had to wait for him to stop giggling, because, <laughs> and I realized what this was. This was a giggle of relief. Yeah. Because this has been a, he owns the home. This has been a problem off and on for three years that he's been there. And finally, he has a solution. He's, you know, you know, like everything he's done, pleading, imploring, you know, I mean, what can he do? And so many people have this problem, Leo. Anyway, the reason he was giggling was that he gave the dog from the second floor window down to the alley along the side of the house, just a short little blip, just, I mean, nothing. And the dog jumped about three feet in the air and has never laugh. been seen since. I shouldn't laugh, but it's 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 probably not painful. It's just shocking. Oh, no, no. It just startled the dog. Yeah, it's just, yeah. you know, outside it's, of its It's experience. no different really than yelling at a dog. Right. If, if he, yeah, but yelling, you know, you, you're throat gets hoarse and right. it's much less high tech and fun um anyway so the the problem is in response to these pictures a number of our listeners tweeted well that doesn't look like something i can go jogging with and the other thing is that it really is overkill you know i i i didn't want to do underkill i should also mention that i have purchased for mark i have said this before in the podcast about 20 different commercial things that exist. I mean, the problem is big enough that other people have tried to solve it. None of them work. And that's been the reports that I've I've seen in the Google groups and in feedback mail and so forth is, you know, people have bought things and they don't work. Well, so I went a little overboard with this first thing. So, I mean, it's just, it's, it is so loud, but I, so I have a new design, and um, it looks like this. Um, and I'm, I don't have a picture of it yet to show, but people who are seeing the video uh, can get a sense for it. So it's just one of those electric, uh, one of those PZO tweeters uh, mounted on a, on a nice little sort of easy to hold hand size box. Um, I have a. I learned a lot building that first one, which is, well, okay, the first one from 50, when I was 15, and then this latest overkill one. Um, I have an amplifier, which is only five components. Um, it's, a, it's a, technically it's called a class E amplifier. Uh, it's a digital switching amplifier that uses two inductors and two capacitors, but it turns four volts into 60 volts peak to peak, which drives the tweeter strong. And in doing so, only consumes about 200 milliamps. So it's easily battery powered. Um, Probably three AA cells will just run it. Um, I've chosen the frequency of 15 kilohertz because it's that's pitched so high that it doesn't disturb people, but it will definitely be audible to a dog. And remember, Leo, I'm sure you do because I know you've got good, good hearing. The, when we were growing up, televisions, you could tell when they were on 
even if they, they like the volume yeah, was turned a, down. A flyback could uh, transform yes. a wine. That yeah. that flyback was that that generated the horizontal sweep for the CRT, and that was fifteen seven fifty. So 15,750 kilohertz. So this sounds like that. It's 15 kilohertz. So it's that same barely audible. I mean, you, you know, like, you know. You've heard if, of, if, have you heard of the Mosquito? No. This is a, an electronic device that you, is used on young people uh, to deter loitering. Oh, yep. And right. it is at 17.4 kilohertz and 108 dB. And uh, typically can only be heard by people under 25 years of age. You have huh. to have acute hearing. And I know this because you can also get this mosquito tone for your cell phone as a uh, alert tone. And kids are using it in class for their text alerts because the teacher can't <laughs> hear it. But they can. Uh, and we great. actually played with it a little bit. And it drove uh, the younger people in our live audience crazy. And I couldn't hear a thing. No kidding. Yeah. Interesting. You well, have to have acute hearing. And, of course, as you get older, uh, the high end uh, drops, off. drops off. Yes. And so and there were two reasons I chose 15 kilohertz. One is that um, canine hearing also drops uh, off as you go higher. Right. And, of course, the speaker efficiency drops off quickly. It's rated out to 20 kilohertz. But, you know, that isn't it's not flat all the way out to 20. So it's beginning to drop off. Now, in um, France, this was ruled illegal. And really? A, and a private individual was fined 2,000 euros after operating the device outside their house. Now, that's France. Yeah. In Belgium, they've been trying to prevent it. In the Republic of Ireland, under the Non-Fatal Offenses Against the Person Act, it is illegal. Um, so there, the legality is kind of interesting. I don't see anything in the U.S. Well, and... I would never suggest that this thing not ever be, used be on humans. Well, not a not used on humans, yeah. um, and not ever used in more than just a very short blast. I mean, it, no more than that is necessary. Right. I guess one of our listeners is a jogger who has something ferocious chasing him if he like jogs oh, in the wrong direction, um, and so he'd like to be able to use it to to deter. An animal from chasing him, and I can't tell you what a problem barking is, Leo. It's just amazing. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. you know, my 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 mom got new neighbors up in San Mateo, and they were both a young couple working during the day. They'd leave their dog out in the backyard, and off they would go to work. My mom and and her husband were at home retired reading, and this dog was just barking because it was bored. It had nothing else to do; it just barked. And so, I mean, it it is just such a problem for so many people. Um, now, how loud? How many decibels? Um, I don't. We're we're north of a hundred. Okay. Um, it's I pretty mean, loud. I mean, it it really is loud. Yeah. Um, uh, which, this mosquito you know, that you leave on all the time, right? It just yes. keeps kids away because they can't. Yes, go. it's supposed to be an irritant right. for for like like you know for for right. dispersing crowds. You know, as if you were like spraying a foul smell in the air, exactly. that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, I. By the I way, chose... it won an Ig Nobel Prize in 2006. <laughs> Do you know about the Ig Nobel Prizes? Uh-uh. They're, they're, uh, they reward the quirkier side of scientific endeavor, achievements that first make people laugh then make them think. So you should keep this up. You might win an Ig Nobel Prize. Well, um, this is... Um, oh, look at that. <laughs> this is 15 kilohertz. Um, 
uh, a 15 kilohertz square wave. It's also not exactly 50% duty cycle. It's about 60-40, which is optimal for driving this incredibly efficient. I should also mention the amplifier is about 97% efficient. Wow. Nothing generates any heat. All of the battery power goes is turned into audio energy. Um, in order to generate the square wave, I chose a an extremely cool little microprocessor. Um, it's the MSP430, which is made by Texas Instruments. Um, back when I was doing looking at this a year ago, everyone may remember that I I'd found something uh, that um, the Espresso was a little an inexpensive development board based on uh, the ARM right, processor. Right. And I was thinking, oh, it'd be fun to, you know, that, that had so much power that you could program it and see and, and so forth. Well, there, my goal was to have a sort of an R&D platform. And I was looking at, you know, a full range power amplifier and a much fancier but inherently much more expensive solution. This is, is really, this is sort of the next generation solve the problem with something lightweight, easy to carry, handheld, and so forth. Now, how directional uh, is it? I know your original portable dog killer was supposed to be very directional, right? Yes, and th and th this is um, it. It's you know when I when I was testing it on myself, a, a, as I rotated the speaker in tell. front of me, yeah. it absolutely peaked when it was aimed at me. Right. So you get some a off axis, but not nearly. I mean, but it's it's very directional. Sh should I play this uh, seventeen point four hertz tone for people? There's no way you could get out through compression. I mean, I'll play it and see if you're right. I mean, yeah. I would think it'd be rolled off. Yeah, I I would be almost sure. I'm anyway, playing it this, now. I don't know. Does anybody hear that? I don't hear anything. No. Yeah. <laughs> and if anyone has any tinnitus at all, then that's also going to be, you know, <laughs> it's like, wait, is that a tone? Is or that me I, or my ears? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. People in the chat room saying they can hear it. No. Eh. All right. I'll tell you what. I'm going to play it sometime in the next 30 seconds, uh, but I won't tell you when. And if you can hear it, then uh, raise your hand. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not this silly. Let's. I think there's a psychological impact. So, um, <laughs> I, I needed to generate a a stable 15 kilohertz square wave uh, with a a specific duty cycle, and I'd want to do it with very few components. This MSP430 is really cool. I actually first discovered it in March when I was considering automating my coffee pot. Because you may, may remember that I went through a the whole drip coffee phase, finding the right grinder and the right beans and all that. They I heard it. They can hear it. No kidding. They heard it. I <laughs> snuck it in there when you said drip coffee, <laughs> and everybody going, I hear it. We got some young listeners with some good ears. Wow. I'm That's surprised nice that, that the compression doesn't roll it off at 17.4 really kilohertz. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Wow. I really am. I'm sorry. So, um. So the um, this microprocessor is very cool. This is the development board, uh, which is available for it. It costs four dollars and thirty cents. Is that the espresso? Th no, this is th something different. Th yes, this is the chip that I'm using for for this next generation. Uh, very efficient, very lightweight, very effective. I believe. Um, uh, dog trainer 
the chip, since the chip is the MSP430, TI sells this complete development kit for $4.30 with free shipping. So uh, you can just, if anyone who wants to start playing, uh, it's $4.30. I went through the whole purchasing process to verify that it, the shipping was free. Um, it's got a socket. It comes with two chips. Um, and my plan is to, I, I'll end up with a bill of materials with, you know, uh, the the parts everyone needs to get if they want to build one for themselves and the software for the chip, uh, which you just saw running there generating that square wave. And I'm just going to put it all up on my website so people can solve this problem for themselves. Um, and we'll sort of play it by ear. Um, if there are people who can't build it, I'm sort of thinking maybe I'll generate, you know, I'll like build 20 and let people experiment with them. I'd like to have some beta oh, testers so who cool. can who can relate what their experiences are. And and actually, um, one of my Starbucks buddies said, hey, it's too bad we don't have a video of when Mark gave the annoying dog next door a little blast. And I thought, yeah. oh, that would, that would be perfect. So if I, what I'm thinking is to... build a camera in? Well, <laughs> no. Everybody's got camera phones That's now. True. Yeah. And so if, if our listeners who borrow one of these from me um, could make a video of their problem being solved, that would really be wonderful. So anyway, I will update people as as this moves along. I just want to let everyone know that uh, the, there have been people who have this problem, have continued to have the problem, and it looks like I'll have a solution uh, with a complete kit that's very easy to build um, that, and will also be very inexpensive. Um, and you and I mentioned... Uh, I think before we began recording, Leo, that, that we had recently donated to Wikipedia. I did tweet that, um, and I wanted to thank people for buying Spinrite because it's because of people buying Spinrite that I'm able to donate some of that money back to Wikipedia. That's I gave neat. them $100 the other day because it, uh, the, it popped up. Oh, and by the way, uh, speaking of Wikipedia – Wikipedia has a beautiful article on the on this microprocessor on the MSP430. So if you just Google MSP430, that's by the way, it stands for Mixed Signal Processor. If you Google MSP430, I think the third link down is the Wikipedia article on it, which is a really nice, comprehensive overview of the chip. Um, and I, there's lot, lots of things I didn't say about it. It's 16 bits. It's a beautiful architecture. Um, very few instructions. I think 27 instructions. Um, a von Neumann architecture, not a Harvard architecture. So it's mixed data and code in a unified address space. It's little Endian byte ordering, which I prefer that, uh, the way the Intel chips are. 16 16-bit registers. Just a joy to program um, in assembler, which is what I'm doing, but also in C, there are free. Um, the uh, GNU toolchain supports it. Uh, Eclipse-based GUI supports it. So there are multiple free development systems. Anyway, it's just it's. And I should also mention that it uses less power when it's idle, but still al alive, than the battery's own self-discharge rate. A micro amp. It it it's, it's amazing. Just a, Super, super, yes, it, it uses a microamp of power, which is less than the battery's own chemistry <laughs> loses in energy sitting on the shelf. Does it, but it wakes so, up pretty quick, too, so. 
yes, it's able to come up to speed in a microsecond. I, I ought to say that where I'm thinking of heading is, and the reason I also have chosen this, is I, I'm considering going further and doing what I would call a dog sitter so that you can put this thing on a fence or on a tree or in your backyard or wherever, and it will hear the bark, recognize it, realize that it's not a motorcycle driving down the street or a car backfiring or, you know, someone piling wood on the side of the house. I mean, it will really be a bark recognizer and then give a little toot of the horn in order to respond to a dog's bark <laughs> and hopefully train it quickly this. not to bark. I love so this. So we'll, uh, we'll, we'll be following along. Um, um, good. I don't, you got, you, you got it all because, uh, I'm, I think the ad is done. So it's, it's all yeah. yours from here on in. Um, the, I, I talked a few weeks ago about a Kickstarter movie that our list, uh, that a listener of ours was, uh, trying to get launched, uh, called the root kit and his site is the rootkit.com. And it doesn't look like it's going to make it. Um, it's, he's got uh, 192 backers who have, as of this point, this morning when I wrote this down, he'd raised $13,652 out of his goal of 50000 and he's got nine days remaining. Now, I don't know. I've not looked to see what the profile of of dollars and days remaining is. It's not like eBay where... A lot of people bid at the last second in order to, you know, not have people outbid them. So I would imagine the dynamics are different here. But uh, for what it's worth, Jonathan Schieffer is our listener. He's trying to get this rootkit movie going. As he says, it's a rogue. Or he says rogue computer hackers discover a plot to monitor everyone on the internet. They fight back. So you know he is a. Move, a movie maker, a commercial maker. He's been interviewing lots of people in the industry. I've been getting links to him. I think I've got 10 so far because uh, I am a supporter, a backer. Um, and anyway, it doesn't look like it's going to happen, but it was a, a cool idea. So I just thought I would mention it again uh, to help him uh, make the make the cut if he can. And I did have a nice note, an anonymous note from a listener who said, I must be honest and tell you I borrowed a copy of Spinrite, which, I, which a friend of mine let me use to recover 120 gigs of data on a drive, which had suddenly quit. As a systems admin by trade, I should know better and back up regularly. But you know how it is. Backups are always on a back burner, not something we think of until problems occur. Needless to say, Spinrite saved my bacon. I was able to recover all my data to a secondary hard drive. I was so thankful and happy, I just bought my own licensed version of Spinrite. Thank you so much for an amazing product. $89 US for 120 gig of data recovered is cheap. That's 0.74 cents per gig. I would say that falls in the bargain bin. So thank you for that. And, uh, as a consequence of people who buy Spinrite, I'm able to do everything else that I do, and I'm I'm glad to. Yeah, and I uh, pledge to give a hundred bucks this year, as I did last year and the year before, to uh, Wikipedia. Uh, Wikipedia as well, because I think that that's a very good cause. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. 
So DTLS, um, Datagram Transport Layer Security. Um, we've talked about the way the internet moves data, how the brilliance, the, the genius of the net was the idea that data did not have that data could be turned into packets. Packets could be sort of blindly sent out onto this network, and each packet, aided by routers along the way, would sort of bounce from one router to the next, from its originating location to its destination, and that was the way data would flow. Prior to that, we had a, you know, you called somebody and you had a phone with modems at each end, an actual almost, you know, switched connection between the two endpoints. This was a whole reconceiving of the notion of how data moves. And one of the the brilliant parts was that they were relaxed about recognizing there would be problems. You might have routers that were congested where all the data was like too much data was coming in for it to go out. And so that would be a problem. And so packets might get lost. Uh, routers might be offline. So packets would have to route themselves around some other path. Um, they, they solved the problems with a set of protocols, which, which were layered on top of this, the, um, the underlying technology. And, and layer is a term we're going to use a few times here in the next half hour um, because it is the, it's the concept of layering of, of sort of a hierarchy of protocols that's another one of the, f- the fundamental right ways that these guys did that. So one of the l- sort of lowest level protocols is one which simply tries to send data from uh, – that is a, a packet of data from one point to another – and that's the that's a the so-called uh, UDP, uh, um, which is uh, a datagram is the is the term used for um, a packet. On um, so there there there's that sort of send the packet onto the net, hope that it gets there. the The benefit of UDP protocol is that it's very lightweight. That is, you simply launch the packet at its destination, and hope for the best. If you don't get a confirmation back that it's been received, then you, you at your option, if it's important that it get there, could send it again. Um, for example, this is the way DNS, the domain name, name system, operates, where you make a query, and if you don't get a response, you make it again, because maybe the packet got lost to the server that you were querying, or its reply got lost back to you. One way or the other, you're not satisfied, so you ask again. Um, another place where, where, where UDP, this kind of simple datagram traffic, is, is nice is we're using it right now. This is the way I'm connected to, to Leo and vice versa, uh, VOIP, voice over IP. The idea here is that we're, we're not so concerned with the absolute perfection of the transmission of data as we are that it stays timely. That is, if a packet gets lost, 
it represents some few milliseconds of sound, and we're just going to skip it. We'll just ignore it. It won't, you know, there'll be a little bit of a blurch or a little, maybe a little perturbation in the audio, but the message still gets through. The, the TCP protocol was designed for things like file transfers, like email, when we're sending a, a file between two points, or the web. HTTP is a protocol that runs on top of TCP, the Transmission Control Protocol, which guarantees delivery of the data as it was sent. And that's the difference, is TCP is a, is a guaranteed delivery system, which means that a, a certain sequence of data is sent and a, exactly that sequence of data will be received. Now, we've already talked about all the things that can go wrong. Um, you can have packets disappear. It's also possible, since the network sort of lets every packet fend for itself, one packet might go off on a slower route and end up coming in after a packet that was sent after it. So that is to say that the packet ordering is not guaranteed on the Internet. So the TCP protocol solves all those problems. It, at the protocol level, takes responsibility for holding on to the data which had been, has been launched out onto the Internet until the far end acknowledges that it's been received, at which point the sender can let go of it. The point is that the, at the application level above TCP, the application just says, send this, and the other side receives it, and all of the troubles that might occur uh, you know, along the way get resolved and handled by TCP. That's its brilliance. But there's some problems with that, and that is if a packet gets dropped, then what the protocol does is stop until, it, it, until that packet gets received again. That is, because TCP is guaranteed, packets need to be retransmitted, and, and so the sender will, will, will stop sending at some point until it gets acknowledgement that the packets have been received. So, so there can be a stall. You, you can also retransmit. We also know that, that TCP always operates trying to find the maximum rate at which it can send packets. So it, it, and the way it does that is it keeps sending them faster and faster until, until they actually are lost somewhere. That is, it finds the problem. It finds the maximum speed that the, net, that the, that the network between its two points can, can accept data by going past it. When you go past that speed, some router along the way gets overflowed and starts dropping packets. And so when that happens, TCP, the protocol, recognizes packet loss and backs off its speed but then, because it might be a transient bandwidth problem on the network, it again creeps back up again. So you sort of have a, a sawtooth shape where it goes up and then drops and then up and then drops and up and then drops. The point is it's, it's deliberately pushing the limits and stalling all the time. So that's the reason, for example, that 
voice over IP, like we're using right now, does not use the TCP protocol. It's because it doesn't, the, the TCP protocol doesn't fit the application. So this is the, the brilliance of the internet is that we have a, a collection of protocols that we can choose among depending upon what kind of service we want from the net. Do we care about real-time service, like with gaming, where you know if one particular move got dropped um, between you and the gaming server, it might not be critical. But if a byte got dropped in a file that was being transferred, that would be critical. So, so we have we have different kinds of services. Okay, so we already know that websites can be connected to securely using what's known as SSL or more recently TLS. SSL was secure sockets layer with the original name of this protocol. And more recently, it's been named TLS, transport layer security. SSL runs on top of TCP. So again, here we have sort of this stack, as it's called a protocol stack or a, a, a layers of, in a hierarchy where we have the, the, the packets at the lowest level, uh, the IP protocol, then the TCP protocol that provides guaranteed delivery of packets in order. And then on top of that is SSL, which is a protocol that, that, that runs above TCP. That is to say that the entire SSL protocol assumes reliable in-order delivery of packets. The SSL protocol or TLS protocol running on TCP is oblivious to packet loss and retransmission and out-of-order delivery and all of the problems that can happen because it relies on the TCP protocol layer below it to deal with that, to solve all those problems. So what happened was back about six years ago um, in 06, uh, a couple security researchers, um, uh, and I, this is a tough name to pronounce, Nagendra um, Motogudu, who at the time was at Stanford, today he's at Google, and Eric Rescorla. Um, Eric, Eric Rescorla, we've run across before. He's a long-term security researcher, and I do get a kick out of the name that he set up for his company. It's um, <clears throat> RTFM, Inc., uh, and at rtfm.com. And we all know that RTFM is an acronym for read the uh, you-know-what manual. Um, anyway, they decided to address the problem of needing security for UDP protocol in the same way that we need security for TCP. Now, you might say, okay, wait a minute. Why do we care about security on UDP? Well, we care about security for TCP, for example, because we want both authentication and we want privacy. We want to know that we're talking to um, you know, bankofamerica.com, and we've endlessly discussed the problems of certificates and certificate authorities and signing and all that, which are all services that that TLS or SSL provides 
the users of that protocol. Um, so that gives us authentication that we know who we're talking to. And we also want privacy for whatever reason. It may be between two anonymous parties. We use SSL just because we don't want to be eavesdropped on. Well, there are a growing number of applications where, where authentication would be useful and privacy would be useful even though we're, we don't need TCP. The problem with, with the problem with TCP, for example, is not only is there the um, the startup handshaking, the 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 SYN packet, the SYNAC, and the ACK, and so forth that establishes the TCP connection. You you get that set up first, then you establish the SSL connection within the TCP connection. Um, but more mostly, it's the issue of real time. TCP, for the reasons we just looked at, is just no good for real-time communications. It, by its nature, that's not what it does. It guarantees all of the data gets to the, the destination exactly as it was sent. It also tries to do it as fast as possible, but in doing so, it's inherently going to be stalling and having problems in addition to just the, the inherent problems that the Internet provides or creates. So, so what these guys did was they said, okay, um, UDP is seeing increasing use. Um, uh, the, you know, the, uh, SIP protocol, SIP session initiation protocol is what VOIP uses. Uh, it's one of the standards that VOIP uses for in initiating internet based, uh, audio connections. Um, and, What's happened is because there has not been a standard traditionally, other providers like Skype, for example, we know that our Skype communication is encrypted. It's not encrypted using any standard protocol. So it's difficult to extend. It's difficult to, to create proxies and, and basically to interact with it in a number of ways that might give us more freedom. Um, and now that I've said it, I was saying earlier it wasn't clear to me why Microsoft had added this to Windows 7. Well, maybe I've answered my own question since they're now also the owners of Skype. Um, and it, it's always nice to be able to build these, you know, to, to extend standards rather than have just create some ad hoc solution. So, so these guys were saying, look, you know, there's, there's uh, voice communications and also increasingly gaming. It would be very nice to, you know, to use... Um, UDP, which is what gaming protocols typically use because they need real-time response. They can tolerate losing some detail, but they need to keep tied in real-time, and TCP doesn't do it. UDP does that beautifully. So they said, okay, how do we, how do we add good security like, you know, TLS-type security which was designed to run on top of a secure underlying protocol of TCP, how do we do that on UDP? Well, um, the result was done right. These guys um, have a depth of understanding and experience and knowledge with security. So they said, look, one of the things we know is we do not want to reinvent anything we don't have to. And it wasn't at all that they were lazy. 
It was that because they understand security, they understand that anything that they would do that would be new, good as they are, as thoroughly as they could imagine thinking it through, would be inherently troublesome. Even even SSL and TLS has, you know, years after it's been deployed, they're still finding little edge cases in it. And we've talked about those as they have come to light, where it's like, whoops, this, you know, here's something we never thought of before. And it's a subtle little problem, but we always know that these things start small and they get bigger. As as we as, as Bruce Shire has famously said, security problems never get smaller. They they only get bigger. So what these guys decided they would do is they would start with the existing SSL TLS library from the open SSL project. And they would they would reuse as much of that as they could so that they would get the benefit of everything that's been learned about how TLS operates on top of TCP. Um, the open SSL project is, believe it or not, just short of a quarter million lines of code, about 240,000 lines of code. Um, they were able to add UDP support. Um, they didn't, they, they, it, it's now part of OpenSSL. Um, and in fact, I, I should mention that, that this DTLS protocol is now in OpenSSL. It's in another package, CYA SSL. It's in GNU TLS and S Channel, which is Microsoft's library uh, in Windows. So it's there, and also in LibSys tools. So this is this now exists in all of the commonly used packages and is available to anyone using those packages who would like to get the benefits of authentication and and privacy, a la TLS, but over but also have the real-time connectivity that UDP perfectly uses. So what these guys did was they, they, they looked at what UDP limitations were and, and, and essentially made the smallest possible changes they could to a variant of TLS to allow it to operate over an insecure channel. Um, the trickiest part was the SSL handshake, which occurs at the beginning. And we did a whole podcast on how SSL works some time ago. If anyone hasn't heard it or wants to refresh, it's, it's available from us, uh, both Leo's and the archives at grc.com. Um, the idea is quickly that the client that wants to to connect to a server sends a so-called client hello message containing a list of all the protocols that it knows about that, that, that it's able to support. The server receives that and from its own list of the things that it supports, it chooses the best of those that are supported by the client and responds with its own hello message which which returns to the client um, uh, the 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 
the one protocol that the server has chosen from among those that the client offered, essentially. So that allows them to negotiate the best connection possible. Um, the client has also sent a pseudo-random number, a nonce, which the server signs using its private key. That gets returned to the client. It's able to verify that using the server's certificate public key. To ver- so, so they're able to um, es- establish some secret data and verify that they each are each other, or at least that, that, the, that, that the server is who it says it is. So this, this handshake goes back and forth a few times. Well, this was a problem to do over UDP because packets might get lost. Also, some of these messages being sent are much larger than a UDP packet. This is not a problem when you're on top of TCP because TCP doesn't have the concept of packets. Packets are at a level, here again, we're talking about a hierarchy, at a layer underneath TCP. TCP just sees a stream of data that's guaranteed to go in each direction and get to where it's going, whereas the UDP protocol is all about individual packets. There's no notion of a connection. There's just, oh, I sent a packet at that direction. Oh, and I just sent another one. Oh, and I got one back. But there's nothing else. There, 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 there's no sort of overriding semantics on top of packets. So what these guys decided was, again, they, they just did not want to reinvent the wheel. The TLS was solid. It's been, you know, made really, really bulletproof. So they, they added a couple, a couple records to, or a couple fields to the, the, the normal TLS records, which is used just during the handshaking phase in order to handle the problem of essentially fragmentation. That is, if a large message needed to be carried within several smaller UDP packets, then, then, then technically that message would be fragmented into pieces, each in its own UDP packet. Um, those are serialized in order to handle out-of-order arrival and also missing packets. And so they, they, there's like a little tiny sort of a mini TCP, um, which which doesn't, it's not fancy. They kept, they kept it as simple as possible. And in fact, to give you some sense of this, whereas at the open SSL library is 240,000 lines of code, they were able to implement this DTLS protocol only using an addition, only adding an additional 7,000 lines of code. So, 7,000 versus 240,000. And of that 7,000, about 60% of that was code they copied and pasted out of OpenSSL into their own region and then edited that a little bit for their own purposes. So, so even 60% of that was mostly from OpenSSL, but they just, they, they know that they couldn't change OpenSSL. They, they, they created their own little subset of it. So, you know, their their code addition was very small in order to add essentially UDP compatibility to the existing SSL protocol. So the the opening there is a there, there there's a need to negotiate between the endpoints in order to 
exchange certificates, verify in the same way that we, we, we do with a website, verify the identity of one side or the other, or, and in some cases both. It certainly supports that. Um, and, to, and to establish the, the cryptographic keying which, uh, under which all subsequent packets will be encrypted. Um, and then they, they just made a few other little tweaks to the protocol, essentially taking up a little bit of space in each UDP packet for some context maintenance so that, so that once the endpoints agreed, they would, be able to ma- they would be able to maintain some context for the connection so that they're, so that they're able to disambiguate other, uh, other similar streams running between the endpoints, and that's it. So, so essentially the story is a couple guys who really understood security with a, with a broad, deep background in how to do this right made minimal changes to the existing open SSL package, which is used, you know, for example, Apache is, is, is runs on top of open SSL for all of its um, HTTPS security connections, um, and it is regarded as the open standard expression of how to do transport layer security correctly. These guys took that. They, they understood that they did not want to recreate the wheel. They, they, you know, no reinvention here. They, they carefully held back from adding features, and they, in, in, in their paper where they talk about the design of this, they, they say, look, you know, there were things we could have added that would have been kind of fun, but, you know, all of our experience is that'll just get us into trouble. All we want to do is, is take a little bit of space from each packet in, in a UDP packet for the overhead needed. Once we establish a connection, we will use the existing TLS handshake, adding to it only enough to sort of create a little bit of a mini TCP for, because the handshake has to have in sequence and guarantee. Otherwise, we leave this alone, and that's the DTLS protocol. It exists. It started off as an RFC 4347, and uh, that was in 06, and it was replaced at the beginning of this year um, when TLS went to version 1.2 in order to deal with a problem that we discussed at the time which was a problem with the uh, the uh, CBC um, uh, mode in which packets were being encrypted. The context from one packet was being carried over into the next, and some clever attackers realized they could use that as a wedge to get in. So version 1.2 of TLS fixes that. So at the beginning of this year, the RFC covering DTLS was updated to 60, RFC 6347 specifically to, to and, and it's actually, they, they have it, they call it DTLS version 1.2, not because there were any, there was never any 1.1, but they wanted to keep it in sync with TLS version 1.2. Um, and we now have another protocol that I wouldn't be surprised if we're hearing about more in the future. It's one of the reasons I wanted to give this a podcast was so that our listeners had some foundation and understanding about this, because my sense is we'll be hearing, you know, that 
that, you know, World of Warcraft is now running over <laughs> DTLS. And it's like, whoa, you know, what's that? Well, now we know. It is datagram-based um, transport layer security, which is a, a variation of the existing transport layer security that was originally designed to run over TCP. This one runs uh, over datagrams and doesn't care if some get lost, doesn't care if they arrive out of order. Uh, it still gives you privacy from encryption and authentication thanks to that startup handshake. And that's the story. That's the story, Morning Glory. <laughs> DTLS. Cool. Yep. Very cool. Another protocol in the bag. <laughs> I have Eventually, you have to do a whole series of, of Schoolhouse Rock episodes explaining all of this so that people like me can understand it. Thank you, Steve Gibson. Steve's uh, notes uh, are available online at uh, uh, his uh, website, grc.com. That's also, by the way, where you'll find 16 kilobit versions of the show for the bandwidth challenge. You'll also find transcripts for those who like to read as they listen. And all of the great stuff Steve offers, including Spinrite, the world's best hard drive, maintenance and recovery utility, lots of freebies there to grc.com. Steve's on Twitter at sggrc. And before long, Leo, you're going to be able to say, and you'll be able to pick up plans for Steve's acoustic dog training project. <laughs> there are a number of people in the chat room who say, I could really use that. So it's, it's, Leo, the problem is amazing. I, I'm, I mean, it's one of the reasons I feel glad that I'm getting back to this. I felt a little badly that I dropped it. There were people saying, hey, you know, uh, I want one of those. And so one way or another, I want to, I want to um, uh, make that possible make that happen excellent you, well, you can watch the show 11 a.m pacific 2 p.m eastern time uh that would be 1900 utc on twit.tv that's when we do it live but you can also get on-demand audio and video after the fact from us so you get the small audio from steve the larger high quality audio or video from us at twit.tv and uh, transcripts from me too thanks to elaine yeah. nice job yep, yep. All right. Thank you, Steve. Okay, my friend. Thank you, and we'll talk next week. On Security Now. Security Now.